0: Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Play the volume loud as you want to, but don't touch my levels now. I got them set just like I like them. Sure. Everybody? Very bad Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, what does it actually mean to be equal?
1: <laughs> uh, I'm Dave Pizarro from Cornell University. When I remember to say my name, it's because I don't have an actual <laughs> answer
0: to your question. How can, like, how can you not have an answer? A ready, prepared answer to that question.
1: I'm right, ready to go. Um, the... I guess it depends what you're equal to, but uh, my, my first thought is that being equal, this isn't a funny answer, but it's just because it's come to mean being good, but like there's a lot of shit I don't want to be equal to. Like almost, it's by nature a comparative term, but it sounds now like it just means well, everybody's equal. That means like, I can imagine a little kid thinking for the first 10 years of their life that equal just means good.
0: Wasn't that, remember that short story, Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut, where they had this society that handicapped people? Yeah, totally. So that everyone could be equal. And the point of that was just being equal on its own isn't necessarily good. (laughs) Right.
1: Uh, Um, That reminds me, though, there's a bunch of studies that try to look at what kids think about this. Like, what do kids think of as equal And uh, it's actually, if you're going to try to answer the question of like what the origins of the concept are, I think that's a good way to do it. But little kids are surprisingly sophisticated about like when you deserve a free sort of like when you deserve a pass or equality of distribution or equality of outcome. But primarily like they pay attention to whether or not you pulled your weight, like from really early on, like whether or not- So is this about
0: fairness or equality?
1: It's about, I think- the studies are about fairness, but, um, I, it's trying to, I think, answer in part the question of what kind of equality or equivalence kids, kids care about. So do they, cause you could imagine that kids are just straight up communists, like equality of, of outcome or of like independent of effort, equality of distribution, um, so, so it's related, but, but I don't know. I don't know. This is, this is the least funny answer I think I've ever given to one of your
0: questions. Well, it wasn't, like, it wasn't a question that would necessarily... Uh, I should have just
1: said dick size and left it at that. Yeah, dick size is what it means to be equal. No,
0: I, I, I asked it as my opening question in part because I forgot to until 30 <laughs> seconds ago come up with one. But also because that is a line that stuck out to me in the new Dave Chappelle special that we're going to talk about in the opening segment we don't fully know what the other person thinks about it right
1: right right we sort of saved our our because i didn't watch it that right when it came out and you just watched it and i tried to like not read too much about it before i watched it other than we heard that people reacted really negatively uh to it and just to gather our thoughts about it.
0: I didn't do what you did. I did read about it. And I never do that. I never read about a work of art before I watch it. But all the sites that I like to go to, like The Ringer, The Atlantic, uh, Vox, sometimes Vulture, they all wrote about it. And they were...
1: Breitbart, that's how I found out about it. (laughs) Right, that's your...
0: (laughs) I'm sure they loved it, right? I got an Amazon Alexa alert
1: (laughs) first thing in the morning.
0: Uh. (laughs) but the the reason i then like i wasn't gonna watch it if you or at least i wasn't gonna watch it soon if you hadn't told me to because like the way they described it in these sites with people that i generally respect they made me not want to see it like not because i was worried about being offended but they made the special sound like Chappelle had some sort of agenda so I'm thinking, okay, so he did this special to bitch about cancel culture and PC culture and the reaction to his last specials on Netflix. And you know me, I don't like when people whine about PC culture. <laughs> like, and I especially don't like when comedians do that. Um, but then what? I watched it because you told me to. And it, I, I don't know, like, it was nothing like the way it was described to me. He- yeah and,
1: so yeah no yeah. go ahead
0: well i was just gonna say like like of course it wouldn't be like it's dave chappelle he's he's an artist he's not right. he's not dave rubin or brett stevens or somebody <laughs> you know like this is a guy that like he's, he's talking about real, someone who got upset so brett quickly stevens. Brett uh, <laughs> we could do a whole opening segment on that wow
1: <laughs> yeah so i actually came at it Uh, Because I hadn't read anything about it. And so I watched it and I was having the reaction that makes me kind of understand why these thought pieces came out afterwards saying that, oh, like he's being reactionary about about all the cancel culture because I wasn't expecting it. So it was more about that than I than I thought it would be. And um, uh, he surprised me. In how directly he was, he was sort of goading the audience.
0: It's funny. I did not. Now it's, we had totally yeah. different expectations. So yeah, I, I think this, that's why. But like, I just didn't see it that way. Well, um, I mean, he,
1: there's a point where he explicitly starts mocking the audience in his white person voice. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, we're saying like, who do I sound like? He's like, you did something bad before. Now I'm going right. to ruin you. And, right. right. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, sort of independent I think we can both agree on this like before we get into the nuts and bolts of like whether or not there's fair criticism and what that criticism is is primarily um we want comedy to be judged on its funniness, right yeah. <laughs> that's like the whole fucking point and um and that's to comedy is is specifically i think we've both always thought as a as a sacred arena for people to practice that art form and more so than probably any other public figure you're given free reign to say crazy shit as long as it's funny and that said I found this to be slightly less funny than the other Chappelle specials and I think that I found it to be slightly less funny because he he does seem to have feelings about this. Like he seemed l- legit to, to like care a lot about what was going on in a way that he, I don't know. He usually has a distance and the distance makes it funnier. Like he, it was, it was too close to home and you could tell. And that just to me made it slightly less funny. Not because it was offensive. Um, so least, I, you know. I, I agree
0: yeah. that he has feelings about this and his feelings might not be that far off from what people think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, But what I thought that he did was wrap all of those feelings and the stuff where he's directly addressing it into the larger comedy structure of his whole routine and the whole set and that it made sense. And I thought a lot of it, especially maybe the first half, was really funny and it was not that mean spirited like that i i also kind of expected it to be more mean spirited than it was uh about like you know yeah. the lgbtq stuff was if if anything kind of a warm bit yeah. uh, you know if, if the part of me that agrees with you and then and and not and maybe can understand the reaction to it was maybe some of the me too stuff which there was a few little funny bits in it but but it wasn't it just didn't fully land for me and there are a couple other things that don't totally land
1: and i say slightly less funny than the other ones to me chappelle is like the like he's he's my hero in terms of comedy and chappelle being slightly less funny i still find hilarious and there were plenty of times where i was laughing out loud and i the, i think that and the only reason i say slightly less funny is because in those particular moments like I especially when he's saying to the audience that's you that's what you sound like there was just a little bit of bitterness which I'm not used to Dave Chappelle expressing and there are comics whose like express persona is bitterness which is fine it's just that it seemed a, a little off um the, the the Chappelle who certainly talks about so many things with with care like stuff that he cares about especially stuff about racism in America but always with like that that distance where he kind of can't, he doesn't, he's never going to let it bother him. Like, he's, ne- he's never going to fully let it bother him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of felt that way about even that, even that most direct looking into the camera, looking at the audience. <laughs> uh, he knows this, first of all, he knows that audience certainly doesn't uh, feel that way. And, you know, that leads into the Michael Jackson stuff, which is... Some of the funniest stuff in the whole <laughs> show. And, you know, obviously it's, it's hugely inflammatory, but he, he understands that, right? He's like, I'm a victim blamer. Like, if you, if you tell me Chris Brown hit Rihanna, I'll be like, what did she do? If you tell me Michael Jackson uh, raped some kids, I'll be like, well, what were they wearing? Yeah, uh, right,
1: right. It's it's stuff that that he knows is he, he's designed it as sort of the like a, design a sentence that would be the most inflammatory <laughs> in today's culture for the specific purpose of seeing if people would get really upset. Now, See, I, I don't think, think that like, well, I, okay. like, I guess I yeah. don't
0: like I don't think <laughs> like he's trying to get people upset. I think he's just like, I'm playing this part right now. Uh, well, that's what I mean. Like that's yeah. in
1: design. Part of his design yeah. was to be that. Like one of the beautiful things about his performances or his worked out material is that he is telling this. The- he's, it's thematic and it's a, it is a narrative and there is a reason why he adopts this persona. But here's what, so there was an article that I read on a website called Two Smart Brothers. Yeah, I, um, I, I read Did you see that one? one? Is the one and, like
0: the worst white people. Yeah, like
1: and and there they say something that I don't think is entirely unfair. I don't like. I don't think that. I think they're just wrong. But the author there says that what Chappelle is doing is trolling his audience. I think that's the wrong take. I can see why somebody would say, "Oh, it sounds like Chappelle is trolling his audience." And if you believe that, then his jokes here are really he's showing animosity toward his audience. So if you believe that he's really trolling, then then I can see why you would be not happy with this. I would still th- say that, like, well, whatever, you can't get that mad at a comedian. Like, I'm, I just genuinely believe like you can get mad at a com- what a comedian does in his or her life. But to get mad at a comedian for what they say on their set is bullshit to me.
0: Yeah, right. But but it wouldn't be as funny if you no. thought. It's funny because I went in with the expectation that that's probably what he was going to do. I, it would it wouldn't have totally surprised me if he had, although I think that's just because I didn't think about, about it hard enough. But I, I just thought from the outset, oh no, that's not at all what he's doing. This is like the, that. These jokes, these jokes that he's telling, even the most inflammatory ones, he's doing that to be funny. He's not doing it right. to make people mad. He's not doing it to start a controversy. He's doing it to be funny. And most of the time it is really funny. Yeah. Uh, so, sh- and
1: okay. So I think, I don't think he's being hostile to the audience either. I think it's in that moment. I wasn't quite sure right, as I was hearing him say that in his white voice. But so, so I don't, I don't think he was. And I think that, you know, Chappelle is the style of comedy where he's trying to point out in a in an artful way, like not with an in-your-face set of statements, but he's trying to point out something that's true and maybe some inconsistencies and make you know, he's a sharp he's a sharp reader of what's going on in society. And I think his his whole Chappelle show was was so good at pointing out the kind of bullshit that that's going on when it comes to race in America. That that's what that's like. So that's the bar that I expect. You know, he's not a one liner. He's not Mitch Hedberg. He's not just being funny. He's being funny because you're like, oh, fuck, that's true. And so I'm I'm holding him to that standard. So I'm like, okay, is it true that everybody is being a little bitch the way that he's sounding right now? And maybe it is true, but I'm convinced now that he's not being listener hostile in the way that I thought, as you say, like, I actually think he's being pretty. He has a heart. There is some. There is a a warmth to Chappelle where you don't think that he's not caring of the people, even the people that he's he's mocking. Um, and if anything, I think he he is maybe a little too willing to take the perspective of of bad people. I mean, I think that's what he does to hilarity when he says shit about like Arkell, you know, like. When he um, says that's, that in the Q&A... He, uh, that's, he's, that
0: might be the funniest thing in the whole. <laughs> we shouldn't ruin it. Just no, we're not going to ruin it. We're gonna, make sure it. you watch the... Ep- it's like you have to go through all the credits and then there's a Q&A.
1: <laughs> it's a long, very long-winded way of trying to get to my point, which is like, here's the way in which I think he might be purposefully saying inflammatory things that are funny. One, not just to point out what he thinks is, is truth. And two, not just to protect the interests of rich people that he's friends with, which is another accusation that, that he's that is floating around. But um, but I think that what he's doing is a super smart. This is his third Netflix special of a three special deal. I think that he is he is being super strategic in going out and saying these things. So that if people don't want to listen to him, they'll ignore him and he'll go out on his own terms. So that he is not a Kevin, he's not Kevin hearted out of comedy. He is saying like, look, this is a test of the, the sort of immune system of my audience. If you're okay with me making jokes about little boys spreading their buttholes for Michael Jackson, then, then be my audience. And if not, like, cool, right? But, but like, I, I think he did it very explicitly to tease apart the wheat
0: from the chaff from his audience, like. So I have a slightly different idea of what he's up to here, but like I think if you're going to write about this special, and I don't think any of the people, they mentioned it, but I don't think any of the people um, posed this question and took it seriously, why does he start out with that Anthony Bourdain line? So he comes out... Oh, interesting he, he,
1: that you were going to say that, because I was going to start saying, and I'll let you finish, but I was going to say, why does he start out with that Prince song? And we might be making a similar point, but go, no, go, right. go ahead. No, right. Sorry. Yeah. So, and and yeah. you're right
0: that he starts out with the Prince song and focuses on the uh, the line in it, and he says it's the key line, um, yeah. trying to run from...
1: From, run from the destruction. You know, I didn't even care.
0: Then he says, "Good people of Atlanta, we must never forget." Anthony Bourdain killed himself, and then he goes a little like it, this isn't funny. Like he goes into a little, he's like the best job show business managed to to produce, and still he hung himself in in a French like luxury suite. Like, why do you think he led off with that? Like to me, that is a that kind of thematically ties what he's doing in the special. But I want to know, before I give my idea, like, what do you think?
1: You know, it's funny. I was so stuck on the, the lines of Prince that I didn't reflect too much on why he starts with that joke. I, I was curious as to whether or not you had any feelings, like even gut reaction, at, because I know you were a huge Anthony Bourdain fan, but I want to know how resilient your, uh, your <laughs> spirit was. I think I, could, that, I could
0: take it. I, yeah, <laughs> I heroically.
1: You are a moral hero. You're a moral hero. I think that what he's saying. I mean, this is trite, but like, it's a let's take perspective. Like, let's let's never forget what perspective means and how easily somebody could perhaps be. I don't know. Like, lose to. To think that your life is miserable as Anthony Bourdain means perhaps you're out of touch with what it really means to be miserable, which is completely unfair to mental illness. So I don't I'm not I don't think Dave Chappelle is saying it that way, but but that's sort of what I'm, I think about this. The reason that he's saying he had a wonderful life and he like that's not suffering.
0: Yeah. So I have a almost the opposite take. To me, he leads off with that, and he follows up with this funny story of a friend who just had a real down and out, like up and then down and out story, and he never thought of killing himself, that when, when you're looking at people and you're looking at what's okay to joke about and what's not okay to joke about and, and who's really suffering and who's really happy, you can't go by these outward signs, fame, celebrity, Wealth, like what your job is, but you you're have already to, more like, right
1: than I was. Sorry, I just wanted to interject.
0: <laughs> Thank but you. You're,
1: you're already more right than I was.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's so much more particularized to like individuals, and you can be soft suff- You can look to the whole world like you are just the luckiest person on earth, and actually be suffering tremendously. Which is why we sh- and I think this connects to some of his Me Too or the PC backlash stuff we have arbitrarily chosen this these categories of people that we're getting mad about comedians g- making fun of and that just ignores the fact that there's this whole range of ways we can either be happy, sad, advantaged, disadvantaged that yeah so that 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 to me is what he's going is doing in that in that there's
1: th- yeah no i like that and interpretation who knows, right? Like he might, he might be saying this as well, but one of the things that I, I was thinking as you were saying that was that he also, I think one of the, the themes in Chappelle's comedy is the resilience of African-Americans in, in, throughout history. Yeah. And I think another thing that he might be saying is, um, look at how somebody who has suffered like my black friend who, had, who got shit on like that, um how it wasn't even a consideration of his to complain in this you know and and to like seriously think that life wasn't worth living that maybe maybe in the context of Dave Chappelle's other comedy what he's he, he's saying that uh black people in america have suffered have suffered so much that this isn't a thing this this wouldn't even like right. the thought, the thought wouldn't enter your mind to complain about that or to think that your life should end because of that. And, and maybe that's another way in which he's pointing out that especially, you know, and I think this is one of the, the things that he's saying about LGBTQ people is that they are resilient in a way that uh, that these jokes would hurt a third party more than it would hurt them. Right. You know, in the and the epilogue, he
0: s- talks about like that uh, transgender person who thought his that stuff was hilarious and no i think you're right actually that he he says something very much reflects what you're later in the show about when he's talking about poor white people and he says you know uh poor black people are exactly the same except poor white people think like what's going on why am i poor like i shouldn't be poor and that just thought never occurs to poor black people (laughs) And again it's like that it's it's what you're saying it's like they don't have the expectation <laughs> yeah. that would allow them to get really upset about their circumstances <laughs> like his, his his friend as opposed to Anthony Bourdain, but I, but I don't think he's dismissing the fact that Anthony Bourdain was suffering. It's just like it's all a package. Yeah, you know, maybe- I, and
1: I, I don't think so either. And that gets, to, yeah, you're right. I think, and it gets to the heart of what I want to say in defense of Dave Chappelle, which I think could be it it could be that that this isn't the case. Like it could be that he has lost any empathy with the with the people that he's making that he's making jokes about. And if that were the case, I think he would cease to be as funny. And you know, look, like I'm not a member of any of the disadvantaged groups that he's mocking. If you're offended, you're offended, and like no one can take that away from you. If you think that you didn't like his jokes, then don't like his jokes. But I do think that it is actually his. His comedy comes from a pretty deep understanding of what it means to be shit on. And and not like this is in the you know, this isn't some piece of social justice that he's working on. They're just jokes. But I think his jokes depend on a real understanding of like like the dynamics between the lesbian, gay, transgendered, bisexual people. Like, he's capturing something really funny when he's describing they're all riding in a car. And yeah. that thing that he's capturing is not something that, that would be easily accessible if you didn't actually have some pretty good knowledge about the people in those communities. Yeah. And good and relationships not, with... And people. good relationships,
0: right. Yeah. No, I no. totally agree. Like, that's no. what I mean about that being a kind of a warm bit. Because they have their own little you know <laughs> resentments and disputes uh you know it, it's it, it makes it sound like a family like and yeah. a, 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 a... <laughs> right
1: exactly exactly but so, as any comedian he might have jokes that don't hit aren't as insightful um or that even <laughs> that even betray some some ill feelings towards certain groups that but but all in all like i think as we've said before i mean you're kind of making when you, you're banking a lot on what you know about a comedian when you hear them say this, when you hear them say these jokes. And I think, you know, we, we've had to come to terms with this with Louis C.K. because of what Louis C.K., does that mean that we can't have faith in him as somebody who can make these jokes? Maybe not. But Dave Chappelle, to me, has not, he's not lost that ability yet. Like I think that.
0: Not at all. I, I actually think the way people are writing about it is, it shows a fundamental misunderstanding about like the the form that they're writing about it is a it's they're writing about something that's an art and they talk about it as if it's you know like a like a speech or like an opening segment on like the, like Sam Harris would give or something like that like, <laughs> like you know for all the people who don't think it's funny that's totally fine but at least approach it in the spirit that it is given in the spirit of the form which is it is a it's it's a comedy set it is a well-structured comedy set that uh that doesn't represent the obvious or superficial agenda that it might appear to
1: now so let me ask you let me ask you this because i i mean i tend to agree with you but but i don't want it to uh, or at least I don't believe that a comedian by just because they're a comedian, that they are um, beyond reproach for their jokes. So I think that there are um, there are ways in which you could cross a line in comedy. You know, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but but there is t- there's an interesting feature of comedy, which is that that line is almost part of what it means to be a stand up comedian in, in sort of as we define it in modern society. Like the, the, w- the birth of modern stand up comedy is, is like you, if, if you don't play with that line, you run the risk of not being funny. Like, right. I, I, but I agree. Yeah.
0: I don't mean that they're beyond reproach for their humor. It's just that you should approach the form as the form and not as some sort of, like, op-ed or something, you know? Yeah. know? Here's the last thing I want to say about it. If, you know, the last third of it is kind of making fun of the opioid crisis and <laughs> the, like, poor white people and their sort of level of entitlement. But again, showing that same quasi-empathy but also ripping into them. If that had been all he had done... Like I don't think a lot of the you would have gotten a lot of these same reactions, and I think that is also a kind of hypocrisy that he's exposing. It would have been okay if he was making fun of the people that you you think it's okay to make fun of, yeah. But it's not okay if he makes fun of people who uh, you think are have, and that that goes back to that Anthony Bourdain thing. It goes back to the what does it actually mean to be equal? I think he is. To the extent that he's philosophically interested in something there, it is at exposing those kinds of not fine grained enough ways of looking at the world and who it's okay to make jokes about and who it's okay not to make jokes about
1: yeah, I think that the pro- sort of progressive left cultural like elite are um, they they don't know what to do with someone like dave chappelle and because he clearly. <laughs> doesn't fall along you know he's like a libertarian in the political not only only by analogy where you can't put them in one or two of the categories you sort of need to like uh, have another way of assessing them he makes people uncomfortable because he doesn't fall along party lines and it's unclear Some, you know the whole time you're sitting there like which side is he on which side is he on which side is he on and if you're listening to comedy that way then then uh, it's lost its fun is like not listening if that's it the right way yeah. you're listening to find out what team what team he's on yeah. and I will say this that thing that you bring out about, about up about the white opioid crisis is spot on. I haven't seen anybody jump to defend the um poor white people who are addicted to to opiates and and I don't know if that's because those aren't powerful people and nobody cares or if because because he did a better job of showing sympathy, you know he's he does a really interesting thing in this special where he gives you something and he takes it away. So just when you're like, okay, he's on the right side, he says something super like fucked up to, to not make you comfortable with it. But it, there's a point which he says, where were you during the crack epidemic in the black community? And, yeah. you know, it was a sickness, um, just like it's, a, it's, a, it's an epidemic now as a sickness, it was an epidemic then is a sickness as well. And that's, there's no, don't
0: do drugs. Like, uh, yeah,
1: that was the, one of the most poignant things he said, like there, where is the just say no campaign for white people addicted to opiates? Um, and, and I think again, like Dave Chappelle, he didn't disappoint me with his ability to point some of that shit out. Now you might disagree. You might disagree about the abortion shit that he said, whatever, like, fine, disagree. Um, (laughs) The, the last thing I'm going to say, though, is the tr- the Prince song where he says going to run from this trying to run from the destruction, you know, I didn't even care is I think that Dave Chappelle might be bordering on nihilism with his sort of frustration at the culture. Like, I think that he genuinely might not care anymore, <laughs> like not about the people that he's talking about, but just about like being a comedian, about dealing with it.
0: Well, he shouldn't Same, care yeah. because he's beloved and he has these Netflix specials that and he is, you know, and I think he knows that. Like, I think he get like if he played the oh, I can't say anything now. Like I'm like if he played that card, it would be bullshit because aside from a handful of people at the Atlantic and Vox and Vulture and, you know, Vice or or wherever I think most people like he's he's a beloved comedian and maybe some people are disappointed with this one. But in general, he's very successful and he just doesn't like he should be not getting too worked up about the cancel culture and all that stuff and whatever happened to, you know. Yeah. uh, Which is what I was worried about. But I, I, I felt like he understands that. And he's playing with it. He's playing with that, you know, preconception and he's playing with what's going on in the media and all the debates, but he doesn't really care. Yeah. And one thing that I, that, that
1: is, I think very like good to remember about this is that Chappelle, when he walked away from the Chappelle show, um, because of what he perceived of as, as sort of Ra- baked in racism into the way things were being oh, done. Yeah, because um, of
0: like a guy like a camera guy laughing at yeah. a joke for the wrong reason or something. Yeah. yeah,
1: and you could call him, you could say that he's the most <laughs> sensitive person of them all. Like he walked away from but but he walked away <laughs> not to make a big deal of it. He walked away and didn't didn't speak to the media for a few years. Yeah. And he walked away from like a billion dollar deal. So this was this was not just him getting offended this was him saying like this is not this is not a part a part of what i want to be of all people like he is sensitive to the real damage that is going on in society and like the real harm like i don't know i think that he should be given a, a pass for like you know we should laugh at his jokes yeah well when know. they're funny yeah when they're, which when i they're did funny.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Again, just last thing, watch the epilogue because there's some really good stuff in there. The stuff he says about Trump and why he doesn't talk about Trump uh, is kind of brilliant. All right. When we come back, we'll talk uh, about a new development in a famous study on free will. All right. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsor for this episode, Simple Habit. Simple Habit, a five-minute vacation for your mind. Dave, Simple Habit is a meditation app for people with busy lives. You're busy, right? God, I need Simple Habit this week more than I've ever needed Simple Habit. You think it takes time, but it doesn't. It actually saves you time because it makes you productive. It makes you, for example, not like text while we're doing an ad read. I'm actually looking at the Simple Habit app. Oh. But,
1: but go on with your accusations. Is there one about accusations? Uh, I'm looking for <laughs> like one to Unfounded accusations.
0: <laughs> like a lot of things, meditation is about building a habit. And once you start meditating daily or almost daily even, it just becomes part of your life. Simple Habit understands that and it makes developing this daily routine easy. They specialize in short meditations, and they have meditations that are tailored to various aspects of your day, meditations for the morning, for going to sleep, for your commute, for a big meeting, for parenting issues, for unwinding after work, and as we noted last time, Dave, mindful sex. Is your sex mindful enough? I feel like I'm never paying attention.
1: I was going to ask if there is one for when your podcast partner gets annoying. Do they take submissions?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that would be great for both of us. Most meditation apps have just a handful of teachers... And frankly, I mean, like, if you do guided meditations, as I sometimes do, you're going to always find some of them a little annoying. But Simple Habit has more than 100 experts offering guided meditations of all kinds. And so you can find the ones that work for you. And my favorite one, which... And I know him from a, a couple other things. He has a uh, bunch of courses and five minute and up meditations. His name is Orin J. Sofer. His voice just relaxes you just listening to him. Once you download their app, there are hundreds of meditations available for free and thousands if you go with the premium version. So go to simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards and download that app. If you want the premium version, we have a special offer. The first 50 listeners to go to simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards will get 30% off the premium subscription. Either way, whether you get the premium version or the free version, please use that link, simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards, so they know you are from our show. Again, simplehabit.com slash verybadwizards. Thank you to Simple Habit for sponsoring this episode. Surviving several gunshot wounds is a wake up call and a miracle in itself, no doubt. What were your thoughts as you lie in the hospital recuperating from the gunshots? They shot me. Straight up, I just kept thinking they really did shake me.
1: Job, they really did shake me welcome back to very bad wizards this is that our very favorite time of every show at least some shows. <laughs> what does that say about us? I don't know. I, I know. I think it was just given that we uh, had recorded an entire segment that we didn't like. This has now become at least my favorite part of the show <laughs> so far. Thanks to everybody who, who supports us in every which way. Um, thank you, especially to everybody who participates in some way or another in our community by contacting us, getting a hold of us and get, telling us what you think uh, about something we said, about one of the topics of our shows, about potential topics, um, whether that's through email or through Twitter. Um, we really appreciate it. If you do want to contact us, you can reach us via email, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us, uh, to our show account, very, at verybadwizards or at Tamler and at Pease on Twitter. Um, if you want to join in discussion with others who might be like you, um, or at least others who share this one quality that you listen to Very Bad Wizards, you can go to the communities on Facebook, facebook.com slash VeryBadWizards, or to our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash VeryBadWizards. And there you can talk shit about us and then pretend like you're surprised when we reply. Uh, <laughs> Tamler has been, uh, as, as he has noted to me in personal communication, 2019, uh become epically trollable as of late um I, uh, I, I, taking on the mantle of uh,
0: <laughs> does it I, yeah i guess it wasn't personal communication then if, <laughs> if, you're, if you're just going to say it we can talk um, about that on another episode publicly we, we, <laughs>
1: Uh, So thank you all uh, for getting hold of us. Oh, also rate us on iTunes. It helps us um, get visibility. At least we think it does, but we also appreciate the ratings. And especially if you want to leave a review, we always get a kick out of those. Follow our account on Instagram. Just look for very bad wizards. And once again, thank you to everybody.
0: And if you want to support us in more tangible ways, you can do that in a number of ways. Go to our support page on fairybadwizards.com, click on the support link, and there you'll find the ways um, to support us. You can give us a one-time donation on PayPal, and you can become one of our beloved, our deeply beloved Patreon supporters. Um, There are three different levels of involvement that you can choose. Right now, all of our Patreon supporters are making suggestions. In fact, it ends today. All of their suggestions, and we have hundreds. It's amazing. And then our especially beloved, sure, uh, $5 and up Patreon supporters will get to vote after dave and i select the finalists and i posted saying that it would end tonight when you say tonight are you talking about are you talking what? about tonight as in the day this airs as a, no as oh, okay. in the day we are recording right now. <laughs> so you have no idea when it ends um <laughs> Uh, but you would if you were a Patreon supporter. So so, so yes, uh, we really appreciate it. We'll, we'll give the finalists in our next episode. And thank you so much to all the people who support us, whether through contacting us, rating us, or through supporting us financially on Patreon or via PayPal. Okay, before we get to our main topic, we're recording this much later. We recorded... Uh, a second segment last time and it just was really bad it was ugly it was dreary yeah
1: not because we fought not the good kind of bad that you guys are going to want to hear but just the boring kind of bad like we we just
0: we weren't we weren't into it you could hear the unenthusiasm in our and we
1: care about our listeners way too much to put that out yeah
0: (laughs) that's actually true i mean like i really felt bad about putting that out
1: all right so uh Today for our topic, uh, like Tamler said, (laughs) second try to topic, we're talking about a classic. So this is an Atlantic article that just uh, came out based on some research, I guess, that was just published, that is tackling this classic set of experiments by a neuroscientist named Benjamin Libet that for a long time have been hotly debated, but for some people used as a great example demonstration of a case in which we think that our conscious intention is controlling our actions is actually shown, at least purportedly, to not be the case. And these were a set of studies that Libet did um, in the 80s Uh, using a particular quirk of of brain activity that had been discovered 20 years before. So basically, the the big picture is this. Libet showed that when people were given the simple instruction to perform a motor movement, so like raise your finger or tap your finger, um, that if you were recording brain waves through EEG, you could actually see that Before the participant consciously had the realization that they were going to initiate the action, so the instructions are: whenever you, whenever you want, uh, you can decide to tap your finger. So he had had people actually say when it was they decided by looking at a timer right in front of them that a few milliseconds up to one full second beforehand, the brain seemed to initiate a uh, surge of activity. And that this predicted whether or not the people were going to tap their finger. And so importantly, this was revealed as happening before the person reported that they had ever had the conscious voluntary phenomenology that they were choosing to lift their finger. And this was taken by many, although uh, Libet was a little more careful himself about this, but it was taken by many as being sort of a paradigmatic example of how our sense of freedom, of agency, of voluntariness is uh, an illusory sensation. Because after all, we can see that the motor activities, presumably the thing that's about to initiate motor activity, has started to happen before you even uh, thought that you were going to make that
0: choice. It has a great opening line in this article. The death of free will began with thousands of finger taps. (laughs) That's
1: right. So what this article is reviewing is, um, some recent research showing that that brain activity that was called the labeled by the neuroscientists who discovered it uh, the readiness potential because I'm not going to try to say that no, stupid fucking German try name. try to say it Bereitschaft potential <laughs> <laughs> bereits bereitschaft potential right <laughs> <laughs> <Beretschaft> potential <Nein. laughs> yeah you have to you have you to like potential <laughs> I get it. the anti-Semitism has to come from the back of your throat.
0: Well you can I, I can't you can do that like naturally.
1: Uh ingrid brings a potential.
0: <laughs>
1: my voice gets shrilly uh when I do my German. Um so this readiness potential was actually in of itself an interesting finding. It was um a couple of neuroscientists, these German neuroscientists who gave it this this name, um were trying to study the brain in a way that they thought was more interesting, that rather than measure how external stimuli influenced brain activity, so like flashing a light or showing you a picture or touching you or whatever, um, to see how it would affect the brain in this sort of classic uh, input-output kind of way, um, they were interested in brain activity for internally generated choices. Like they they wanted to explore um, voluntary action in this, in the sense of, um, self-initiated action. And so they wanted to find a way to see what was going on in the brain when people were making decisions. So in some way, uh, they were actually looking for the will part of the brain, right? They, they wanted to, to see if you could measure that. And, um, what they, what they found was through a, a pretty interesting technique was that, um, this activity seemed to coincide with voluntary choices that were made by participants in the lab, strapped to E.Gs. But you couldn't see this activity on its own. Um, what you have to do is, uh, because this little readiness potential is actually a pretty weak brain signal, what they had to do was um, record a bunch of uh, instances of voluntary action and average all of those. And then you can start seeing the spike in brain activity because it's you know it's like an order of magnitude smaller. And when they did that by looking at the full recordings of people before and after they made choices, then you can see that spike. And it's 20 years later that Libet took that spike and tried to use a more precise measurement of voluntary choice, and that's when he showed what he showed.
0: Okay. So the new results that this article is describing they give an alternate explanation of what the Berachschaft potential <laughs> what 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 it's actually doing and what what it's uh, reflect but let's just take for a second the Labette experiments under the assumption that that is what the Berachschaft's potential
1: right uh, like let's assume that it is yeah. readiness potential as in it is a motor it is a precursor to your motor your choice for motor action right so I think we both see the same, you know, and we've probably discussed this in our earlier episodes of free will. We probably both believe this, that, that this was never a great piece of evidence for or against free will, or at least not any more of a concern than
0: the more conceptual
1: arguments, right?
0: I mean, I would say even stronger, like it is, it's baffling to me that This is something that people thought that this was going to be a threat to free will. And here's why. What would free will have to be? like? What did these people imagine free will was? And and what would it have to be neurologically in order to accept that that it existed, that it was real? What would they find, right? So I guess the idea is you have your brain just minding its own business, um, doing the things that brains do, and then the person would report, I want to tap my finger, and that would not have any kind of uh, precursor or anything. It would just all of a sudden, right following that, initiate like brain activity. Is that...
1: I think, so, okay, so let me give, I'm going to be the most charitable I can to why people might think this is the way. So I think that it does hinge because if it's just anything in the brain, then that has to obviously be the the case that, that that's ridiculous because obviously something has to happen in your brain in order to make an intention happen. I think that it might really depend on whether you believe that this readiness potential is a marker of motor activity because if you believe that it's a marker of motor activity and not something like a marker of judgment or choice or voluntariness then maybe it's a little bit more threatening because it would if you saw that the part of your brain that was um that made choices what do you mean by motor activity so I mean, like the, the part of your brain that is responsible for, for, for controlling uh, your, your body, right? Okay. So the, the motor cortex, um, I can see where if you, if, it, if there was a good way of seeing like this judgment part of the brain or some other part of the brain that wasn't the, the motor activity, then it might be closer to the well of course we would expect that something happens before the motor activity is initiated but this is sort of like it could be saying you uh were before you were done pondering whether or not you're going to move it your body was starting to move it
0: okay so to go back to my question then what would they find if free will existed then
1: yeah, well, that's the. I feel like you've gotten to the the the, the heart of the question because I think uh, you, there's no. I think that one of the deep, deep problems with offering any empirical evidence for the absence of free will is that unless you can come up with a conceivable empirical uh, finding that would be supportive of free will, then it's a fool's errand. I think that in this case, though, it would be less distressing if it was that you see the cho- the intention part of the brain light up, and then you see the motor movement in your fingers. So um, you see, I when think- you're aware
0: of the choice, you see that part light up as if this is yeah, it, like this is yeah, <laughs> as if this <laughs> yeah. is how the brain works, and then you would see the motor part. This right,
1: and and you could say, even if even if you saw in whatever intentional system, even if you saw like a little blip before you finally decided, well, then then I might say, well, maybe that's just as threatening, but but at least it goes along with the story that the brain something is caught has to cause my intentions, and then my intentions cause my motor behavior, but. But I don't know. That's, that's the most charitable. I, I think that might at least explain why people at first found it to be extra interesting. Now, LeBet what? himself didn't even believe that this wasn't right. like, here's one of the things that I don't remember if it says in this article. Like, no, it doesn't. Oh, because people could stop themselves from acting. Right. That, that much was clear from the original Libet experiments. So what he called veto power. Yeah. And I don't know how the fuck that isn't, like, well, Libet himself how that doesn't said, take the wind.
0: <laughs> yeah, he said, like, he called it, like, free won't, like, that we had yeah. veto power. He actually thought that that's where free will, now, I think there are separate problems with that view, but he thought yeah. that's where free will was in the veto power. And this right. article doesn't bring that up at all which is unfortunate um let's just to build the case and be charitable let's add that the john dylan haynes um experiments would put people in fmris and told them to pick a choice right button a or button b and they could predict before the person presses the button um which which button they would press based on the brain activity with somewhere between 60 to 80% accuracy, right? Right. And so, again, the idea is your brain is choosing before, and I think this is a multiply, like just an insanely confused sentence, but your brain is choosing before you're even aware that you're choosing. Your brain yeah. has already made the choice, and so it's like this epiphenomenon of you deciding to to right. press the button. Um, right. So here's I I, I looked at um, so Jerry Coyne, your boy, your number one boy. <laughs> I didn't even know about him before we started this podcast. I think that that one of the first discussions we ever had, you were you were citing Jerry Coin. Yeah, well, he's um, your number one boy. <laughs> <laughs> so here is. Him describing both Libet and the John Dylan Haynes study, he says, This has obvious implications for the notion of free will, at least as most people conceive of that concept. We like to think that our conscious selves make decisions, but in fact, the choices appear to have been made by our brains before we're aware of them. The implication of course is that deterministic forces beyond our conscious control are involved in our decisions, i.e. that free will isn't really free. We don't really make choices, they are made long before, long before we're conscious <laughs> of having chosen strawberry versus pistachio ice cream at the store.
1: So I I wanted to like ask you, uh, is it obvious at all that um so the these results, if anything, are showing that at least our conscious volition is, is at least the claim is, centered around the feeling, the conscious feeling that, of volunteering something. Um, but I think that there are views about what freedom is that don't require us to have that full conscious control over it, right? Certainly well, not sure over
0: are. those kinds of decisions. Press button A, press button B, or tap your finger. And, and, and really, and if any and any, right, because
1: yeah. like all, all it takes is, you know, I like to to sometimes point to this William, J- you know, this is very dated. William James had an art, a chapter on the will in his principles of psychology, and he gives this really, really long, it's a long chapter where he what boils what he thinks is the seat of free will is that every once in a while he thinks the brain is going on mechanistically just like anything else. And every once in a while. We can hold a thought in our brain for a split second longer than it would have held and that that can completely change the course of our our life or our day or our minute. And that's what he thought free will was. So like there... And the we there being what? Yeah, well, the we being whatever he thought was magic about that moment where he chose to, (laughs) to. But I only bring it up to point out that even somebody who believes in some supernatural dualism might still be able to hold that um that suppose you decide through your supernatural magic, your libertarian free will kicks in once a year to tell you to go right versus left. Um, and that in turn causes all sorts of cascading effects. Like I, that's not inconsistent with, with free will. That is a whole lot of our decisions might be, um, Unconscious or oh, un unavailable to our
0: conscious awareness, right. and that wouldn't
1: necessarily mean that we're not free.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so let's talk about this. So I just want to read yeah. one other quote. This is from the a Nature article. So if, if you think strawmanning by quoting Jerry Coyne, here's an article from in Nature by Carrie Smith about the John Dylan Haynes experiment. And she, I think probably. As yeah, humans, she- we like to think our decisions are under our conscious control, that we have free will. So that's what, how, how free will is defined here, is that our decisions yeah, are under our conscious control. Philosophers have debated that concept for centuries, and now Haynes and other experimental neuroscientists are raising a new challenge. They argue that consciousness of a decision may be a mere biochemical afterthought with no influence whatsoever on a person's actions. According to this logic, they say free will is an illusion. We feel we choose, but we don't. Now, so, so let's talk about this conception of free will, because I think that there's something fundamentally just incoherent about it, right? Like, let me not say incoherent. Let me just say we constantly, and we know this, make choices all the time that we're not aware of when we when we make them. LA, we're constantly doing that. We're only aware of afterwards that we made <laughs> this the choice right like this is this is bringing back uh, my vague
1: my distant memories of our earlier episodes where we actually discovered of each other that you think that most of your life is spent without making conscious decisions and i i thought that most of my life was spent making them consciously and only a sum of it is automatic
0: yeah like, i mean i feel like i'm
1: constantly making decisions <laughs>
0: consciously well Okay. But you would admit, I mean, but, I don't know what the ratio is, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like, you, you, like, I'm riding my bike to work and I'm constantly making these little choices and doing the things. And it's not like I'm not thinking about it. It's just that it's so obvious to me that I would report having like conscious awareness of the choice well after I made it. And so. Especially for these kinds of things: when to tap your finger, which button to press. The idea that if some sort of brain process is, is initiating, that has some predictive power that could tell me before I, I'm aware of which button to choose, wouldn't that, that, that would be totally consistent with my everyday experience. Um, and, and, and an everyday experience where I feel like I make choices and deliberate all the time. Not uh, so all I the see. time, okay. but, but, uh, but, you know, many yeah. times during the day.
1: I think that, that, that this brings up an interesting question, which is that uh, my intuition is, is that these um, choices to press either A and B or to lift your finger are not of the variety that you're talking about where you're sort of like mindlessly driving, you know, and I realize I've been driving to work when I was trying to drive somewhere else, but I was just on automatic pilot. And I realize after the fact that I really never had any conscious phenomenology about that decision. I would think that being in the lab where your sole task is either choose A or B, that you would be extremely aware of your volitional processes. Like everything is stripped away. That's why I took these studies to be kind of um suppose like you know attempts at at getting to the heart of what volition is. We're stripping everything away. All you have to do is think A or B. All right? Think A or B. I I think that people and I don't know if they self-report, but I think they would say, "No, I really did consciously choose A or B."
0: But they did consciously choose ARP. Right. So it's not like those mindless kinds of decisions so, that you're talking about. Okay. My point is when I'm biking to work, if I see like a traffic, that there's traffic or maybe like an Astros game downtown and I have to decide whether to um, go on this street or that street. I have to make a choice and it is a choice that is, it's not just like the choice to pedal or like, it's not pure, purely automatic. It is a choice and it feels like I've made a choice, but it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all. It's very consistent with my phenomenology that there is some part of my muscle memory or something, some sort of experience where that that's leaning me in that direction before I even am aware that, that, would, uh, that that's what would happen. Here's another example, right? I, I, I think I've used this on the podcast before, but maybe not. Like If I play poker, uh, because I'm, I have such a face that expresses like, my emotions, often people will know whether I'm going to fold uh, if they're good poker players before I do. Right. And if you're married for a long time, as I've been, you often know before your spouse what they're going to choose, even though they're trying to figure out what to choose. The point is, is that like, of course, that there's ways that we're leaning um, before we're aware of that. Like, I just I, I think that that is an undeniable fact of introspective human psychology that Often, when we're making a decision, we're leaning in and maybe even strongly leaning in a direction without being aware of that. And then when we make, and, and that would show up in our brain activity, right? And then when we make the decision, uh, maybe that's the moment where we feel like we've done it. But if you told us afterwards, oh, well, you know.
1: Right. So, what you're saying is that there's that, all of the things that influence leaning one way or another might actually show up in the brain before uh before you your conscious volition kicks in and right? yeah i would say it's
0: would, it not just might like of course it has to like yeah. it has to show no up. it has yeah. to i yeah. mean
1: yeah and we should te- there's a way in which like this this uh like this your problem really does require some conceptual on uh, a lot of conceptual analysis perhaps because i think what you're saying is really a, a few things but one of them sounds like uh Like, what is the positive, like the big problem about libertarian views of free will is that it's unclear what the conception of libertarian free will would ever be like from what we know about just how causes work. I think that's right. Um, uh, Now, here's a question. So, like, why, like, why do people find these compelling? And, And I think that it's because I feel like I know I have control when I am aware of making a decision. And if you tell me that something else was in control, like if I am, you know, if I'm asking you to tap a button and unbeknownst to you, like I'm actually remote controlling you. Um, and you thought, and this is the classic um, uh, Dan Wegner argument. Right. If you thought that you had, that it had been caused by your choice and you come to find out that it was a remote control. Then I think that's what's threatening to people that like, in a case where I really, really did think that it was me because it was caused right after my conscious desire. And you tell me now that it wasn't me, then that's, that seems threatening. And like rhetorically, I think that these, these studies are just like, I think you you could show this in so many different ways, but these studies are just trying to rhetorically make that point. Except that
0: in this case, it's your, it's not some external person mm-hmm. controlling you. It's your brain, which always controls you all the time because yeah. we're assuming that like <laughs> dualism isn't true. Like this whole idea of, I thought I chose it, but it was actually my brain that chose it is like that. It's, it's insane. It's lunacy. Yeah, you're
1: right. That's the difference between the Wegner. So, so, so in the classic sort of Dan Wegner. uh, uh, experimental setup. It is somebody else choosing it. And he tries to use that to argue that um, therefore your conscious volition is never indicative of it being you. So you shouldn't trust it, which is, I think also ridiculous because but yeah, your brain is you. It is your interface. This is the interface that we have with the world. That is it. That is all. Any Anybody who wants to believe in some notion of freedom, this point has been made by a gajillion people. If you want to believe in some coherent notion of freedom, you have to come to terms with the fact that your brain is a part of the natural world. I don't think that it is required for anybody to uh, believe in the important kind of freedom. And here, maybe we can s- yeah. switch it into responsibility.
0: Oh, um, I was going to say we should say what the actual new results are. But
1: yeah, let's talk about the new result. Like before yeah. we get into responsibility, these new results are as follows, which, again, if, if you're sort of convinced, like, like we might have been, that the Libet studies never showed what they uh, were supposed to show, then, then these new results are just for neuroscientists. <laughs> like, they're not that interesting. But I think that but
0: it's relevant to the discussion.
1: It is relevant. So what, what these researchers uh, showed, or as the article says, one of them had an epiphany. I love that. I hope someone writes of my insights once, <laughs> In 2019, Pizarro had an epiphany. And that was that, hey, you know what? There's been this kind of going assumption that this readiness potential is indicative of some sort of readiness to engage in this motor activity. Um, But what if it's not? What if what's going on is that the brain is just constantly being activated in a particular way, sort of randomly? Um, in the same way that noise is present in a whole lot of other systems, right? You just have this general background noise, this ebb and flow of the brain's activity, and that what um, what these original German researchers in the Libet were were capturing when they um, when they measured this readiness potential was just the random ebbing and flowing of the brain's activity. And it just so happens that in the complete absence of any other input for uh, like environmental input or any reason, any anything that you might consider um, an uh, an input into your decision, which is what these lab studies were trying to do, like make this devoid of all context, that maybe the thing that is going to get you to move is something like whether or not, Uh, Your brain happened to be like the wave of activity in your brain happened to be uh, kicking in in that area when you were given the instruction. So to quote this rather, it would mean that the noisy activity in people's brains sometimes happens to tip the scale if there's nothing else to base a choice on saving us from endless indecision when faced with an arbitrary task. The readiness potential would be the rising part of the brain fluctuations that tend to coincide with the, with the decisions. This is a highly specific situation, not a general case for all or even many choices. Right. Like it reminded me of the classic bird and ass, uh, a thought experiment where, or example where the, there's a donkey stuck between equidistant between two bales of hay. And because the donkey can't decide, uh, which one to go to, it dies of starvation it's not the, it's not the perfect example, but like imagine you have nothing else to base your decision on. Um, some of the brain's noise kicks in and and pushes you one way or another or else, at least I think the article is claiming or else we would sit in states of indecision for these these kinds of
0: tasks. And, and they did a control study, right? They included right. a control condition in which people didn't move at all. An artificial intelligence classifier allowed them to find at what point the brain activity in the two conditions diverged. If Libet was right, that should have happened at 500 milliseconds before the movement, but the algorithm couldn't tell any difference until about only 150 seconds before the movement, the time people reported making decisions in the, Libet's original experiments.
1: And I think the idea is that you see the same patterns of brain activation we're showing that the ebb and flow of brain activity is, is the same in both cases. It's just that in, in the Lebèt cases, the con- conditions in which you're given the instruction to tap, that's what's like kicking in the tap. But this, the activity is the
0: same uh, in the control people. And so it's- this is the background noise. So let me just read the quote. Neuroscientists know that for people to make any type of decision, our neurons need to gather evidence for each option. The decision is reached when one group of neurons accumulates evidence past a a certain threshold. Sometimes this evidence comes from sensory information from the outside world. But Labette's experiment, sugar pointed out, provided its subjects with no such external cues. To decide when to tap their fingers, the participants simply acted whenever the moment struck them. Those spontaneous moments must have coincided with the haphazard ebb and flow of the participants' brain activities. They would have been more likely to tap their fingers when their motor system happened to be closer to a threshold for movement initiation.
1: So yeah, I think their view in looking at the, at the um, actual paper is that this is just constant random background noise, and if it just so happens to coincide with um, the instructions for the task, basically, you know, any for any given neuron to fire, it has to have a bunch of neurons firing before it that will give it enough chemical signal to decide to fire. So it's either it will happen or it won't, and so that build up. They're saying uh, your brain is constantly in this state of like edging. Right. <laughs> like, and Lebette is making you come, right? Lebette <laughs> right. is like killing the edge. <laughs> um, but like, does it, isn't it an interesting, t- like, I don't know if, if you had this thought, but what this article is reporting is, um, illustrates nicely this, what it would mean to have libertarian free will, because, um, It is not like this is a critique of the Libet interpretation of what's going on with the readiness potential. So he's saying it's not it's it's not that this particular action got predicted before, but it's just this random brain noise that's actually determining whether you're going to uh, act or not. And that is, as people have pointed out, not that's not like that's going to save free will, right? Like I don't like if it was just my random brain activity, that's like, that's not any better.
0: Yeah. I didn't, I guess I thought that it's not any better for this kind of decision. Right. So it would, fuck. There's a, can you hear this?
1: Yeah, I can, but I don't know if the recording can.
0: Uh, Well, probably if you can. Because it's coming through the mic. Um, Well, I'll just say this. I'm sorry there's a leaf blower. It doesn't
1: doesn't matter. It's noise.
0: It's just noise. (laughs) At worst, what it would show is when you're not given any information to help you make a choice, and it's supposed to be just completely spontaneous, that is something that the random fluctuations of your brain might actually be what's behind you making that choice, right? Right. Yeah. So at most, that's what it would show, is that given no further information, if you're just told to press a button or not, or to press A or B, or to tap a finger whenever you feel like it, based on nothing except your own just caprice, then maybe some random fluctuations of your brain will predictively or even determinatively. But I feel like that's obvious. Like, of course, something is going to make me decide to tap a finger if I'm not given any other parameters that would influence me one way or, the- or another. Something has to make me make the choice, Right. That's so disanalogous to most of the decisions that we associate with free will when we do have information, when we have information from all sorts of, uh, all sorts of influences, and we are processing that and trying to make the choice. right? The idea that this would generalize to all decisions is crazy, and it doesn't have to be my brain. It could be anything. You could tell me like the, the, the wind in the room is what's making me choose or a sudden drop in temperature or like a leaf blower or whatever. <laughs> like if I have no other information, then sure, something's got to give me the, the impulse to decide or not. Like, again, it's this conception of free will, which is just it's this thing that I, I, I don't even know what that what that could possibly be.
1: I completely agree that there is no conception of freedom that that makes any sense along those lines, right? Some it has to be something. Now, if that thing is a leaf blower and you thought it was um, your priorities,:
0: But you can't have like, priorities in this case.
1: Well, but this so this gets to something that kind of bugs me that i that I, I hadn't really thought about so So now on this story right? This, this novel, uh, um, understanding of what this readiness potential is. They're saying, well, look like it's this ebb and flow of brain activity. That's random. When Libet gives instructions to lift your finger or not, um, since you're essentially indifferent and have no other causes acting upon you, then that kicks in and makes you, uh, decide based on when that wave of, uh, brain activities is coming in. Um, and in people who are not given any instructions at all, that wave of activity can be demonstrated in much the same form, right? Like there's no difference in that wave of, of random activity. Mm-hmm. So what is it that is kicking you into lifting your finger in the non-control condition? there still reeks to me of something in baked into the way that these neuroscientists are talking about this that says, yeah, like what Libet was showing was the random influence before the decision is kicking in. We can show those random influences are there even in people who aren't given the instruction, but in people who are given the instruction, um, This is getting their movements above a threshold. So what's that other bit that was necessary? Like, what's that other piece of the decision that is actually making your your motor activity initiate?
0: It's something else probably in your brain. But it is not the baratch, the baratches potential. (laughs) Which was the whole argument against free will in the first place, right? So, if that thing is going constantly, like this fucking leaf blower, then, you know, there's some other activity. And who knows when that, you know, how that activity coincides with your conscious awareness. We don't know. But, um, but it's, it's, this isn't the thing that's doing it. And if this is your argument against free will, which is an insane argument to begin with um then it's it's it, it doesn't work anymore
1: right so so it is i think that that what's bothering is that the thought that that this um that the status of free will somebody might think either either rises or falls depending on whether or not the Libet interpretation is right or the particular studies or which of the brain activities is being shown or what that brain activity means. The thought that that bears any like it has anything to do with whether or not an action is free is uh, I think just untenable. And so it's weird to think that like, oh, yeah, we've shown that Libet's Lebet, uh, redness potential isn't what he thought it was. To then say, therefore, maybe we do have free will. Right. Which I don't think, to be fair, the author is saying.
0: You're, you're granting a premise that you shouldn't grant.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that at the heart of it, this has been our, a perennial uh, view of some of this, this work, which is that there is nothing... There, there is no empirical finding that could debunk free will because unless you're going to tell me that there is an empirical finding that show demonstrates free will. That could vindicate but, um, it, yeah. Yeah, and this is not to say before all of our, our, our Sam Harris fans jump on us. I, I, at least, am not mounting an argument for freedom by saying that none of this matters. I just think that whatever argument you mount against freedom won't, if it's good, include an argument about Libet studies or any other neuroscientific studies or any other psychological studies,
0: right? Yeah, and even Sam Harris, I saw that he tweeted that one of his biggest regrets was mentioning the Libet studies as evidence against the idea of free will, that it, even if it, if the results were what they appeared to be, it wouldn't, way against or for one way or the other
1: is this an instance of uh, sam actually agreeing that he was wrong or is this an instance of sam doubling down on his view that he's right about free will and that it shouldn't have mattered about libette one way or the other
0: well that's a you know that's a question for (laughs) sam and his therapist but (laughs) Uh, no, I mean, I think he is. I mean, he called it his biggest regret about the book, right? Like, and I don't think it was just because of these results. I think that, like, I, this is a tweet that I don't even have up in front of me, but the implication, right? It was, was Dan
1: Dennett. I think. Tw- I think Dan Dennett pointed this out, and then yeah. Sam Harris saw because Sam's called out uh, yeah. specifically in in this
0: article. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like you say, we have been on this issue for a long time. Um, to say that these kinds of experiments disprove free will is to assume that free will is something that it, like, it's nonsensical. Yeah. That, that no finding could um, support, and in which case it would be an unfalsifiable hypothesis, um, both that you yeah. have it or, or that you don't.
1: Yeah, that's why we call it metaphysics, right? So, <laughs>
0: so how does this... Why is the Libet study, you know, this was in the 80s, right? And people were talking about it. Your number one boy, Jerry Coyne, keeps referring to it as an argument. Like, how does this happen? These articles. <laughs> Remember the article on worms having free will? Yeah. yeah. So here's my, I'm going to throw out a hypothesis for how this happens. It is a market failure. Nobody loses money when people offer these confused analyses of free will or its absence. In fact, on the contrary, they probably get money. So this is something where it's all the incentives are pointing in the direction of making a mistake that you don't have to be a genius to um, at least recognize once it's repeatedly pointed out to you.
1: It's interesting. So, uh, so a couple of uh, like, there's part, part of me agrees with you, but I actually want to know like what it is specifically that makes this a marketable hypothesis. One possibility is that uh, sort of in this uh, Gladwellian way, anything that challenges a deeply held belief by what we might call a scientific finding is marketable. Yeah. And until those get debunked, people weirdly have a desire to slurp up that stuff, or at least some people do.
0: And they even have a desire to slurp up stuff that goes against it, right? But right. not to let it die.
1: And I when when I was doing a little bit of research on on this topic, I I'm not going to link to it because I think that that I'm the way that i'm going to describe this uh, blog post uh, shows why i don't think it would be fair but it was a person who was clearly somebody who had been apparently trained in psychology um but they had a bl- big post arguing this was earlier uh, a few years ago arguing like really strongly against all all of the people who thought that libet uh showed that we have no free will And it's not that I disagreed with the criticisms. It's that the criticisms ended up being used to support that spirituality is an integral part of science and that, you know, and, and I don't want to mock the the poor person because I I think they, their hearts in the right place about, about those criticisms, but it did read in such a motivated way. And I think it read it in such a motivated way because they were explicit about their spiritual beliefs, but. People who are like hardcore, you know, I feel like there is this strand of contrarianism where people, certain kind of people love to point out the harsh truth to fellow human beings that you're a sucker and there is no such thing as free will. And here's the science to back it up without ever having critically analyzed any of that science.
0: Right. No, that's true. There's definitely that the, there's this we've talked about this I think literally since the first episode where we were like <laughs> yeah. you can't the, you can't handle the truth. maybe that's the second episode right <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah that's exactly right yeah. <laughs> you know like you the that there is there's a market for that. There is also a separate market. it's not our market, although it's maybe like i'm I'm edging into that market the spiritual- science needs spirituality right so this is yeah. what I'm talking about is there is a market for not putting this to bed on every side, you know, of of maintaining the premise, at least, that these studies have uh, some sort could mount some sort of threat or if not that it supports some kind of spiritual uh, understanding of of the universe, which then can be mocked marketably by the other side, and that's how this keeps going. And this is, if you want to talk about a threat to free will, this is a threat (laughs) to free will, that market forces are controlling how you feel and think about free will. (laughs) You know what I mean? <laughs> this, is, this is the real threat. You think you're like figuring this out and uh, deliberating about what counts and what doesn't. But actually, <laughs> it's you know, what will make the most money, the, you know, the kind of Marxist uh, idea. Um, the,
1: uh, well, um, this is why Jordan Peterson is selling a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Whether he likes to admit it or not, a Marxist analysis of his book sales is the appropriate one. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing though that, that you said that i that I think I disagree with, which is that um you don't have to be a genius um or that you know like in order to figure out that these are shitty arguments <laughs> I think that it's easy to underestimate how difficult it is to sift through some of this stuff and actually come up with a coherent notion of what it would mean say to have free will you know what does freedom mean at all what is determinism mean? I think those are actually like really hard and 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 when some scientist tells you that they found this, um, on the, I think that there is a on-the-face-of-it threat, right? I think that it takes a good deal of training to, or at least reflection, to realize that this isn't the threat that we thought. Yeah.
0: No, uh, that, you're right. I, 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 as it was coming out, realized I had overstated my point. You don't need to be a genius to recognize it, but you need some familiarity and some background and just some time where you've thought about these issues to recognize it. That doesn't explain the people who are writing about it and the people and the neuroscientists who are making the claims and the Jerry coins and the, like, that doesn't explain um, those people. It just... I actually think that, like, it's it's a
1: nice uh, analogy to the blogger I was talking about who wanted to defend uh, their spiritual beliefs that people who are really convinced of the truth of determinism, like sometimes I feel like they're like, um, perhaps I I think there's what, there's two things. One is that scientists are surprisingly uncritical of some of these issues, right? Like that, that everything is cut and dry and you can develop a sort of arrogance about uh, as scientists, they know not only the things they know, but also how to know the things that they don't know, and that this they, they don't really give too much critical thought about the possibility that empirical science can't answer some of these questions. Yeah. Um, like weirdly naive about that,
0: absolutely, in a way that really irks me.
1: Yeah, yeah. like it, they're not skeptical
0: of these kinds of studies at all, yeah. in the way that right. they, in exactly the same way that they criticize uh, the spiritual camp for being. It, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> or in a um, similar, in a suspiciously similar way. Yes.
1: Yeah, they're definitely more critical. Um, but then there, I think, I think the more pernicious actors, which are the ones who actually know better, like they actually are. Uh, so, in I can't tell this, but w- the distinction between these two people who know that these studies wouldn't at all matter. For whether or not, uh, say, free will exists, um, but are so convinced, say, of the truth of determinism that they feel okay schlocking it as like to the masses. So, do you so think like, that there are a lot of people like that? I don't. I don't think there are a lot of people like that. But I do think that these are the people who are in the marketplace of ideas that you're talking about. I, I think that per, perhaps it is less a conscious. Uh, um, intent that
0: I, than I'm ascribing, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, for all my ripping on Jerry Coyne, I don't think he's like that.
1: N- no, but Coyne is a biologist. Like, I, you know, I, I'm talking about people who have either good interdisciplinary training or even philosophical specific training who know that these can't be great arguments but that are, are you know, I, fe- I feel this way sometimes about people who are convinced in the truth about the truth of consequentialism, that they're willing to use any argument, you know who I'll use it as, as an example, because he doesn't have a thin skin at all about this stuff. And I've definitely told him this to his face before. Sometimes I think that Walterson and Armstrong does this. He's a really smart guy who knows what is a good argument and is a bad argument. But sometimes I think he's okay Leveling a bunch of bad arguments, so long as he thinks that it might convince you of the truth of his position,
0: the ends justify the means, kind of. thing
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's like it's like, yeah it's part of his ethics, and and <laughs> right. you know I'm not <laughs> not to cast aspersions on 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 people other than Walterson and Armstrong, uh, whom I love, Paul but Brayden. um, but I, <laughs> well, and that's what like let me ask you, man, like. Are you going to feel those market pressures and ignore some good uh, arguments that go against your views when it comes to your next book?
0: (laughs) Do you feel this at (laughs) all? My next hypothetical book. (laughs) I think that they are unconscious. Like, I can't remember. Now, of course, we've already had our memory discussion but like, <laughs> i can't remember yeah. a time where i've let consciously let something go that i know is bullshit and propagated it that's why i think yeah. a lot of this is going on you know in, in, and of course it's 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 too sharp a distinction there are certain it's, things where i yeah. where i'm kind of like am i not being skeptical enough but it's not like i actively yeah. already think it's bullshit maybe i think well i could you know it's this confirmation bias kind of thing maybe i could like try to be a little more skeptical and i decide not to you know because it it wouldn't be compatible with the position i'm defending but i think most of the time and i don't know if you're like this i, I i'm pretty good about and this is like if you look at my books they're very even-handed like they if anything yeah. they're they're to a fault don't take a stand on things. And I think it's because I often really try to reckon with the complexity and I'm often torn in two directions and I try to have my work reflect that.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think that is true of you. I think you have a shtick uh, on our podcast where sometimes you're not like that, but I don't think that's true of, of who you are. But I also agree with you that it's it's, It's the less charitable thing to say that people are doing it on purpose. I think a few people might be for consequentialist reasons doing it on purpose, but I think that it's so hard to know. And when I think about the things that I have changed my mind about or the things that I am unsure about that I used to be sure about, it really is all because of having smart enough people around me who have been arguing their side uh, uh, enough that I actually start to think that, that maybe I'm wrong. And I don't know that that's a reliable process for the truth like that's also (laughs) it just might mean that i'm like easily swayed by the people around me
0: Um, Um, right you're impressionable (laughs) yeah no i I, but here's the thing like we're also not in a position where if we promote a view like we get a lot of money if we're appropriately skeptical we don't that's why why i I love
1: podcasting to be honest that's why i love this format because we don't have to in order to be doing whatever it is we're doing
0: but if it was like that for us You know, like, if we were constantly, like, being flooded with money when we defended a view that we ought to be more skeptical about, like, that's just not true for me, then I, you know, maybe I would be less even-handed about certain things. You know what I mean? I don't know. I I, I feel like... nobody losing money when these kinds of confusions get propagated is a problem. Like, and I don't, there's no real way of dealing with it, <laughs> but like that's, you know, cause it's also true about news and like all sorts of different things. But
1: yeah, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, it has to be more than that because nobody loses money when any scientist says anything in any journal. Cause nobody pays any attention.
0: Um, but, but, but people like, even in your field, right? Like, y- People's reputations get, like, ruined if they've been basing all their research on either fraudulent results or even, you know, bad, you know, not replicated through sort of fishy stat stuff, right? Like, people's reputation get ruined by that. Nobody's reputation, no science journalist's (laughs) reputation got ruined for the 20 years of, like, over-promoting this Libet stuff right like no uh and none of the people who participated in it uh who sort of I, <laughs> helped it along everybody's they're all fine
1: yeah it's only poor lebet who's turning over in his grave um although you know that that's interesting because it's often taken as an argument uh in the other direction that we shouldn't smear people's reputations when they've been fabulously wrong even because that what that will do is provide an incentive for people to dig down and do shitty science like to keep doing shitty science so like now perhaps after this gets published somebody will double down and say no like these these original things were right and and it might actually take longer um for people to come to believe the true thing because their reputation is at stake
0: oh definitely this isn't going to like like it's not like oh no but we'll all wake up as if it's a bad dream the libet stuff <laughs> as as like, we'll
1: finally have the truth we'll finally <laughs> you know, know the truth yeah and everyone, and everyone the will Institute wake a, up a betting it's like, market <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I, I mean it could be that this has played its course you know this the libet thing and they're going, yeah and I, and maybe it's run its course there's no there's no money to be made on uh, on, I, uh, on either side and so it'll just die down.
1: I think we're wrapping up, but there are two things that I want to say before we finish for sure. One of which is that this is by far, like, if you want to read criticisms of Libet, we like, we didn't talk about all of those, right? Like about whether or not people's self-report is reliable and the clock that they looked at and all that. There are all kinds of reasons that you might be skeptical
0: of uh, the particular studies. Al Mealy, (laughs) Eddie Namius, like tons of philosophers have written about this.
1: Yeah. And the second thing I wanted to say is that by far the biggest threat I ever had, uh, intrapsychically to the thought that I might be free happened when I was a firm believer in the existence of God and his foreknowledge. Like that's what shook me to my core. (laughs) Like that God knows everything from time zero to, to time infinity. Uh, that was way bigger a threat to me than uh, than any of this this stuff. Even even the Than reports one. that you
0: have a brain and nervous system like that. <laughs> exactly. that was more exactly. of a threat. God. Yeah.
1: I was relieved to know that it was just coming from that.
0: <laughs> Breaking news: You have a brain and a nervous.
1: System. At this point, I'll take being remote yeah. controlled by somebody with free will.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have never talked about that. The foreign, I don't think. Maybe we have. No, I don't think the so. But it was like argument, a yeah.
1: Yeah. It was something that was super formative for me. Um, and it, I, I think that it was one of the things that really got me into, uh, into, uh, looking into philosophy, um, was being raised with this very, very strict view that, that God, um, I was told both God knows everything for sure, for sure. And that you for sure, for sure have free will. And I remember frustratingly talking to, in fact, one of my, uh, friends, father's who's a theologian, um and being like this can't fucking be right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that might yeah. be.
0: You know, we could uh, do an episode on for the the threat of foreknowledge to free will. Uh, you know what? We could have uh, if he
1: ever listens or decides to come back on our show. Uh, Sean Nichols was raised in a Calvinist tradition, um, and Dirk and- Paraboom
0: both at Cornell. Oh, they were? Oh, I we should have Parabinole a panel maybe. on... I don't know if it's Calvinist specifically, but I think it is. Or Lutheran. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of those. One of those. <laughs> One of those, you're born going to hell, so too fucking bad.
1: I know. It's like...
0: <laughs> Shut up. It would be cool. That,
1: that'd be cool to believe that you're already going to hell. <laughs> right. you do whatever you want.
0: Liberating. <laughs> that's free will right there. That's like that's are going, going to hell anyway, so fuck it. <laughs> uh, all right all right on that note <laughs> on that note join us next time on very bad wizard the has spoken oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man I'm a very good man good man. more brains than you have. Pay no attention to that man. Anybody can have a brain. You're a very bad man. I'm a very good man. Just a very bad wizard.